Hey everyone, this is Kevin Eslin, and you're listening to another episode of Folk Stories. Today my guest is Tessa Hulse, an artist, writer, and adventurer whose work spans a multitude of genres and whose travels have taken her across all seven continents, a lot of it on bike. Tessa is the daughter of two first-generation immigrants and is currently working on a graphic novel about her grandmother titled Feeding Ghosts. Tessa describes herself as a compulsive genre hopper who has worked in some capacity as an illustrator, cartoonist, editor, interviewer, writer, performer, chef, muralist, conductor of social experiments, painter, teacher, and researcher. She's fascinated by the concept of home. Outside of working on her graphic novel, Tessa is also focused on public speaking about little-known women at the turn of the century and social activism. In today's episode, We'll talk about Tessa's current project and its origin. We talk about Calvin Hobbes and, be the, and being either totally engaged in or out of work. And we talk about the feelings that come with home and solitude. And now, without any further ado, I give you Tessa Holtz. Tessa, welcome to Folk Stories. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and for working with my crazy schedule. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, you know... I have a feeling that based on your background and all the things that you do, I'm going to have a lot of trouble trying to find a coherent introduction to you. And so I figured that I saved myself the trouble and ask you, you know, if you were to describe what you do to people, how would you do it? Okay. Um, I call myself a visual artist slash writer slash researcher slash adventurer. Um, and it kind of used to be that those were individual spinning plates that I kept going, but they've become very fused. So my medium swaps, but I do a lot of storytelling involving digging into cultural narratives, immigration stories, uh, lost history. Last night in Seattle, I was just giving a talk on the feminist history of bike exploration in the early 1900s. So Basically, my process involves disappearing into libraries and reading a lot of books and then kind of turning those into illustrated lectures. Um, yeah, it is hard to concisely explain. <laughs> and I wonder, how did you get started in this? Did you always know that this sort of like illustrative cultural narratives was which you were going to get into or did you stumble into it? How did this come about? I stumbled into it, definitely. Um I would say about seven years ago is when I, I started going rogue. I used to just be a fairly straightforward visual artist. I was a painter. I showed in galleries. I was kind of going down that trajectory, but it always felt really incomplete. And more and more, I found myself drawn to process and the underpinnings of a finished result. And once I started shifting towards, okay, well, what's the backstory here? That's when research and kind of um, archival materials started to make more of an appearance. And then with... The project that you're alluding to, I'm, I'm imagining, I'm, I'm about, I'm in the beginning of year four of a nonfiction graphic novel called Feeding Ghosts that's tracing three generations of women in my family and their immigration narrative coming from China. So I sort of always knew that eventually I would have to tackle that story as my creative self, but I spent a very long time running from that fact and didn't start working on it until I was in my 30s. So in a way, I think it's a natural progression that this is where I ended up, but I kind of had to hone these individual skill sets before I could start weaving them together into one thing. So I definitely want to talk about your current work um, and this idea of running away from exploring your family history. I think it's something that me and probably a lot of immigrants can relate to. Mm -hmm. um, the way I think about, I guess, the trajectory of the things I'm working on is well, I'm going to get out of school, and after school, I'm going to focus on like career and work. And then, oh, there's this huge black hole thing that is family and culture and baggage and immigration. But I'm going to save that for some time in the future. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, it just seems like something that is overwhelming. Um, I guess you started this project four years ago. How did you know, or what triggered the start of exploring your own um, family culture? Yeah, so I have a, a very concrete story about when this project started. Um, for a little bit of context, both my parents are first-generation immigrants. My mom's Chinese, my dad's British, and um, they somehow ended up, uh, you know, my mom was born in Shanghai, my dad in London, and they ended up in a town of 350 people in Northern California. So that's where I grew up. And so I didn't really have any context as to 
well, A, what it meant to be an American because we didn't have TV and I had no friends within 20 miles. Um, but B, I didn't really understand the idea of where my parents came from. Um, so what led me to working on this project, I felt very very constrained by growing up in such a small town and that kind of sowed the seeds of me being kind of pathologically independent. Um, I basically was a feral kid with a library card and I had really amazing outdoor access where I grew up so I would just read linear feet of books at the library and just throw them in a backpack and just roam the hills that way and that's more or less still what I do is my creative practice. Um, so I basically started this very adventurous life of bicycling alone across continents, um, went to all seven continents, mostly with work contracts to afford it um, by the time I turned 30. And then I was biking around Mexico by myself four years ago. And I had been feeling for the last few years that this notion of kind of just like dop dropping into other people's cultures wasn't working anymore. It was starting to feel voyeuristic and it wasn't answering the set of questions that I could tell I was wrestling with. And so I had this moment where I was alone on my bike um, on a mountain in Mexico near Oaxaca and just looked off at the horizon and sort of threw the question out to the universe. Okay, well, if this chapter is done, then what comes next? And the answer just felt really direct and unequivocal. And um, all of the projects that I do begin with a phrase of text that I get lodged in my head. And my process is figuring out what that means. And so... It was basically the universe, skies opening up and saying, someone has to feed the ghosts. And that's when I knew I had to start this enormous graphic novel that I'd been running for, or farting from, for most of my life. And when you decided on the medium of a graphic novel, was that always apparent, or did you have to think about it? Um, well, when I said I was going to start this project, I had no idea how to draw comics. It was not a medium that I'd been working in. But since I'm coming from an individual background as both a visual artist and a writer, uh, I sort of knew that eventually I would want to work in a medium that had those tensions. So in order to tell the story that I wanted to tell, I knew that that was the medium that I was going to have to work in. But I also knew that that meant I was going to have to learn how to become a cartoonist. Um, so here in Seattle, we are very lucky with our public library system. And so part of what I did is I instituted graphic novel boot camp, and I would go to the library and close my eyes and pick a graphic novel at random every week and take it home, read it, and do just sketchbook critiques of what works about this, what doesn't, and taught myself the rules by basically putting in an enormous array of inputs of graphic novels, both successful and unsuccessful, um, to kind of teach myself how that form functioned. So usually when I think about at least myself and, you know, I, if I were to undertake a new skill, um, for example, drawing a cartoon, mm -hmm. that alone seems like an enormous undertaking. And then couple that with, you know, unpacking the baggage of your past and your family, um, that seems like, you know, you're combining two really hard things. Um, is there something unique about, you know, the graphic novel aspect of this that you felt like you needed to do this in order to tell your family's story? Like, what part of the graphic novel do you feel like um, spoke to you? I think a lot of it is the way that graphic novels give you this really unprecedented level of control over how you guide your viewer slash reader across the page. And I actually, my gateway drug to looking at comics was poetry. I got really interested in the structural mechanics of poetry. And what I like about graphic novels is you're able to tell two concurrent stories and you have this tension that you can create between the words and the images. And so because this is a very complex story, I liked the fact that working in a graphic novel would kind of give me this layered ability to play words and images off each other, to tell basically an individual story in words, an individual story in images, but also this hybrid space that combine them. And it seems like it also mixes in the work that you've done in the past as a writer and all sorts of artists. Mm -hmm. um, when you've been looking at graphic novels... Are there any in particular that stand out, whose styles you particularly like, and um, how? It, like, what is the style that you're trying to adopt as you're doing this project? Oh, man, I wish we were doing this with something that has visuals, because <laughs> yes. I, uh, 
Actually, I'll dig it out to show you. This is a little crib sheet of what I'm going for. So Feeding Ghosts strives to combine the intellectual and literary rigor of Alison Bechtel's Fun Home with the melding of personal and historical narratives of Persepolis and the tenderness of Blankets, drawn with the fluidity of This One Summer and the precision of Black Hole, with miscellaneous inspiration from David B.'s Epileptic and The Best We Could Do. So, <laughs> you know, this is probably the best means of answering that question. Yeah, well, I get it a lot as people saying like, "What are you gunning for?" And rather than than trying to, so when you look at the show notes, I've actually drawn little thumbnails of all these graphic novels, um, and it's it's an easy, concise way for me to show someone what I'm going for. Um, you mentioned earlier that when you were a kid, that you were feral and had a library card, and you'd read a lot of books. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what did you read as a kid and what do you read now and how has that changed over time if it did? <laughs> uh, the short answer to both of those questions is everything. Um, Calvin and Hobbes was my first love. I love Calvin and, and Hobbes. Yeah, I actually have a tattoo of Calvin and Hobbes in their little red wagon, which I got at 18. My mom was appalled by it, but I still stand by. Like, Calvin and Hobbes is pretty seminal on how I turned out both as a person and as an artist. And I actually found my childhood sketchbook um, many years ago, and it turns out the things in life that I loved were Knights and Dragons and Calvin and Hobbes, and it was just pages and pages of those. Um, gosh, books, that is a can of worms. I'm a truly voracious reader. Um, I don't even know where to start with answering that. Right now, I'm reading Rage Becomes Her by Soraya Chamali, which is amazing. She's actually reading at Benner Royal Hall tonight, and um, I'm getting paid to go be their visual sketch artist. So, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I have a friend who works for Sal, and um, she sometimes, if I want to go see something, I'll just text her. And I was totally kidding. I was like, you should just hire me. And then they did. <laughs> so that's how you get a job. Okay. Yeah, pretty Write much. <laughs> Um, when you talk about Calvin Hobbes, and I think that is definitely one of the books that I go back and time and time again, I find that almost all of like life's most profound questions and struggles, like you can find in one of those comic strips. Um, I also read um, in an interview you gave, he talked about um, you quoted the uh, Calvin Hobbes uh, strip where the trouble with tigers is that they're either on <laughs> or off, and you talked about how that is kind of reflected in how you operate. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate a bit on that. Oh, you did your research. Um, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, so I, I think part of this sort of wilderness life that I have has led to me having a, a fairly literal, segregated life that's a triphasic. And so for many years in Seattle, I would work summers in Alaska in the middle of nowhere in Denali National Park. And then I would be a freelance artist and writer in the fall and winter. And then I would leave and go be on a bike trip for a couple months every year. Um, and so what that led to was basically these three independent lives that I would very rapidly cycle through. And I got very used to having no buffer zones between them. So because my life is, is kind of constant forward motion in a somewhat unusual way, when I'm resting, I'm really, really resting. Um, so I tend to, to either be... Like, I think I either work 15 hours a week or 70 hours a week. And there's there's not much middle ground in that. And I find that I'm really drawn to those extremes, and they work well for me. And what does that look like? So, for example, on one of those 70-hour uh, hour weeks, um, how does... I'm sure that it might be hard to describe like a typical day but just like an example of like a snapshot of what those days and weeks might look like for you well i'm actually in the middle of one of those right now so i'm, I'm weathering it shockingly well there's a part of me that's like maybe i'm finally old enough that i've learned how to take care of myself during these intense production periods um i have a solo show opening at the santa cruz museum of art on march 1st and i have to drive down with all the finished work on february 16th so i'm i'm in that kind of i have the tiger on repeat mode right now um one thing that i'm always really careful to do is to keep exercising and keep spending a lot of time outside when i'm in these periods so day in the life i live in port townsend washington i wake up at six in the morning i have a leisurely breakfast because that kind of quiet morning time is really important to me. Um, then I mountain bike through the woods to my art studio, which is a block and a half from the beach, which is amazing. Um, there's no bathroom there. So when 
I have to go use the restroom. I have to walk to the porta potties that are right by the water, and I actually really appreciate that. Um, so basically, I'll go put in, you know, maybe six hours of work in the beginning of the day um, and listen to a truly, truly absurd number of podcasts. Um, then I'll take some sort of outdoor break, go ride my bike, go home and hang out for a while, and then go back and put in a second work shift. And then when, after your second work shift ends, what time is that in bed? Um, I usually am done by around 5.30 or 6 p.m. I'm not a nighttime worker, um, and I'm somebody where I always read for pleasure regardless of how busy I am. So I don't try and work at night. I'm much more inclined to wake up really early and get things done in the morning rather than trying to keep myself up and productive at night. So I think I, I've learned to be very good about um, when I'm at work, I'm at work. When I'm not, I am completely happy and not at all guilty to just be reading something for fun and eating popcorn on the couch. And when you're reading, um, so something I struggle with is finding time to read. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's actually something I hear from quite a lot of people is like, I'm constantly doing things and I'd love to get back to books, but I just don't have time for it. Um, do you have, how do you keep reading in your life, especially when you're entering these Eye of the Tiger kind of modes? Um, I think a lot of it is not having a day job. So those hours where you're sort of captive to sitting in one place, doing whatever it is you do for work, I can sort of... I can steal more time to read because that time is more available to me. Um, also, artist residencies, oh my gosh, they are, they are the best for reading. Um, so this year, I did a really absurd number of residencies. Um, you kind of cast a wide net with those because you never know how many you're going to get into. And I ended up being a lot more successful than expected. So I did six residencies this year. And... Um, the last round of them that I did, I was at Playa Summer Lake in Oregon in October, and I had a two-week residency there that was coming off of the end of just one of these periods of no downtime for many months. And so I told myself that I was going to spend the first week there only resting, and I wasn't allowed to do anything productive, and I was just going to sit in a muumuu and relax. And that was actually really hard for me. There were times where I was like, oh no, I'm going to my drawing table. It's still week one. I can't do that. Mm. Um, so I read 12 books in week one oh, and wow. took a lot of afternoon naps and it was really great and really necessary. Um, so yeah, I use residency time to read. And I think also because so much of my practice is now research-based, I can very legitimately say that reading is work. And I think having blurred the lines of profession and pleasure has, has made it much easier to keep reading an integrated part of my daily routine. So something, um, some advice I've heard from people is that if you have something that you're passionate about, like a hobby, the last thing you want to do is make it part of your work because mm -hmm. then you can, it can lead to um, long hours, burnout, and not liking the thing that you used to do for pleasure. Um, so it sounds like for you, like you've started integrating, like reading and your work. And I'm wondering, you know, do you have a fear that this might skirt the line of something you do for pleasure versus something you do for work, or has this just been working out for you? I think that's where seasonal work is really important for me, and I step away from my creative practice for long periods of time. Um, what I used to do in Alaska, well, this goes back to the, the set of questions you ask everyone at the end, but um, to jump into that question of what's something that most people don't know about you, uh, people who kind of meet me as my artist self usually are surprised to learn that I'm a professional chef. So that has been the way that I've been able to travel all over the world is I take cooking contracts in remote places. And for me, popping out of art world to cook is a seminal part of how I keep myself from burnout because it's using the same creative skill set, same part of my brain, same vocabulary in a lot of ways. You know, it's about choosing a limited palette and working with composition and balance to make a little self-contained narrative. And so cooking for me, I absolutely love doing it. There is no amount of money you could pay me to do it year-round, and I would never work in a restaurant. But I basically have been really fortunate to be able to take these cooking contracts where I'm like in remote wilderness lodges or running the kitchens for artist residencies, and those are dual-purposed because it helps with the financial side of being an artist, and it also gives me a much-needed vacation from kind of the freeform chaos of my creative practice the rest of the year. Uh, that sounds amazing. And I'm wondering, when you do uh, cooking, mm -hmm. 
Are you still doing any sort of art, or is it just all cooking? All cooking. Yep, it's great. And I, I think that's been how I've been able to, to keep that, you know, doing what you love for work. I, I've really been able to maintain my love of it, and I think that's because I very deliberately step away from it um, for large chunks of the year. And also, I've chosen a life where I have really low overhead, and my income is something that probably most people living in Seattle would find impossible to live off of. But I'm really happy with the life that I have and don't find myself feeling like things aren't within my means. So I think the fact that I have, um, I don't need much in terms of income really, really helps with not feeling like I have to be in constant production mode and I'm able to be pretty choosy with the sorts of projects that I say yes to. And that seems like it goes back into your um, fiercely independent streak. Like mm -hmm. Having low overhead just means that you, know, you can do a lot more without being dependent on the things that, that typically entails. Yeah, and you know, last year with six artist residencies, six weeks in China, biking across Cuba, and like, long story short, I was only paying rent for one month last year. And so it's like kind of this strange paradox where... You know, if I if I had to maintain a more stable life um, and pay for that, I wouldn't be able to do all of these these sort of harebrained adventure schemes and long periods away from normal society. But it's it's kind of become um, it's become a pattern that's surprisingly sustainable, where I don't have stability in a way that other people would recognize. But I'm actually able to have a lot more freedom um, with a lot less income. Is there anything that you miss what, from the sort of lifestyle that you have? Like having, um, I don't know, just like a constant environment in which to wake up to? Or have you been fine with the trade-offs? Um, I mean, my honest answer to that question, I feel really lucky in that I have really robust communities scattered all over the place. So pretty much anywhere I go is home. The The one sort of existentially overarching question is a has to do with like long-term partnership and wondering if I have chosen a, a wonderful life that I adore but that's kind of destined to be a world of one so yeah ask me in five years <laughs> okay we'll do a follow-up um and speaking of him I notice on your page too you notice that one of the themes that you are working with is this concept of home and what it means and For you, who you know, whose home is all around the world, um, can you tell us a little bit about what your concept of home is and how that might have changed over time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think, as I'm sure you relate to, if your recent family story is one of immigration, it sort of puts you in this place where home is a nebulous concept and you never really know where it is. And I think once I embraced the idea that home was a moving target it made me a lot more comfortable with like not needing to find something static. Um, to me, home is, home is wherever you feel safe. Home is wherever you feel like you're in a place to, to move forward with whatever it is you need to think about or work through. Um, and I, I feel most at home when I am alone on my bike in the middle of nowhere or three days into a solo backpacking trip. And for me, yeah, the strongest sense of home I get deep in the wilderness. Another theme that you also mentioned in your works is um, the idea of solitude. Mm -hmm. And from your travels and you know what you just said, I think a lot of the things that you also do are like you on your bike by yourself. Um, I guess to start off, like what do you think of solitude? Because that means a lot of different things to different people. Like for some people, solitude, for example, like solitary confinement, like mm -hmm. even in prison where like you have um, like the worst sort of punishment imaginable mm -hmm. is like being by yourself but and on the other hand some people find like solitude to be something empowering and freeing and um, where have you been on solitude? Well I think when I was younger it was kind of forced on me just based off of where I lived and, and grew up and the older I get the more I appreciate that that was really integrated into my childhood where I learned how to be alone very very early in life and um, For me, solitude is the engagement with silence, and that's something that I really need. There, um, there's a book that Aldous Huxley wrote, The Doors of Perception, where he talks about the idea of the brain functioning as a reducing valve. And so its job is to take all of the inputs that you're receiving all the time and to reduce it to a more manageable bandwidth. And I have always been somebody whose mind is not doing the best job as a reducing valve. And so 
as kind of a compulsively curious person who's like always wanting to explore everything, um, I kind of need to take myself out of the equation sometimes to actually be able to find silence in a way that I can have that reducing valve function and actually sort through what's going on. And so for me, that's where bike travel, where, you know, there are times like biking across West Texas, for an example, um, I will just be crossing the desert in a straight line for 10 hours without seeing a human being. And that's when I'm really able to sort of sift through ideas and do my most generative work. I was actually just reading a really interesting book. Um, I don't remember his name, but it was it was about silence. It was the first man to walk to both the North Pole and South Pole and summit Mount Everest. And he was talking about this idea of moving your body to move your mind and getting to a place where you can hear what the silence has to say. And for me, that's what solitude is, and that's why I'm drawn to it. When you look for solitude, um, so for me, for example, if I find that I'm getting a little burned out. I will take a retreat. But I also find that during the retreat, um, like three, four days, and then that's like the perfect amount of time for me because then I start getting antsy. Mm-hmm. And then I start wanting to do things and being back in the city. Do you find like a, both a minimum or like a maximum amount of time in which you can get away from that's useful? That's a good question. I generally, I like to travel for long periods of time so that I can sort of fully leave whatever reality I was in before. So ideally, if I'm going to go on any sort of trip, I like it to be at least six weeks, which I'm sure people listening to this who have normal jobs think that's an appallingly long time. Um, I think the sweet spot for me is between that six weeks to three and a half months period. And that's what I loved about working seasonally in Alaska is there the season is late May to mid-September, and that's perfect. Um, I've never found the far end of my thirst for solitude, but I'm going to this year um, because I got this crazy wilderness writing residency. So between April and October, I'll be spending six to seven months alone in southern Oregon on a 92-acre homestead in a cabin with no cell service or internet. It's a one-hour drive to my mailbox. It's a two-hour drive on backlogging roads from the nearest anything. Um... So that's going to be a really interesting experiment. Yeah, I got about that. So that was the Penn residency uh-huh. that you're referring to. And um, so a five-month residency, can you just talk about, well, first of all, like what does a typical artist residency look like? Because I think most people haven't had that experience. Um, and then let's just start off there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so each residency is different. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. If anyone's interested in learning more, there's an organization called the Alliance for Artist Communities that keeps an international database of them, and that's, that's kind of a good way to, to find ones tailored to what you're looking for. So the rudimentary requirements is you're given space to work. Um, some of them you pay for, some of them you don't. The length varies anywhere from a weekend to a year. I would say on average, most residencies are about one month. Um, They're often in remote spaces. The ones that I'm most drawn to are um, also kind of, I would say at first it wasn't something I was seeking out deliberately, but there are a lot of residencies that have great access to trail networks. So I always bring my mountain bike when I go to residencies. Um, But yeah, you essentially are given somewhere to sleep, somewhere to work, and you are left alone with no oversight to really just go into your creative process, which is a truly incredible and rare experience as a working artist. And when you're at a residency, are you at a residency with other people? Mm -hmm. Usually, yeah. So cohorts are anywhere from 1 to 50. Um, I would say on average, the ones that I've done are the eight to 10 people range. This one that I'm doing is a little bit unique because it's, it's just me and the, um, the application, you know, really tries to scare you away. If you're somebody who, um, basically if they think you're somebody who romanticizes the idea of solitude, but doesn't have much experience with it, they, uh, they suggest you, you take a good look in the mirror and ask yourself if you're up for it. Um, yeah, I think, um, taking a look at you and, your history, I think you are definitely not a stranger to solitude, and I'm actually really excited for you for this residency in which you come out of it with. Um, when you're in these either in a residency or just like deep in your work, um, I know that for me, like if I'm doing writing, um, I can often get stuck mm-hmm. um, and hit a writer's block, and 
does that happen to you? And if so, like, how do you get around that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's part of why I work in so many different genres is I always have a bunch of back burner projects and they're usually in different mediums. So I know that like my writer friends or my visual artist friends, they'll switch and work on a different piece for a while. I'll go a step further and just work in a different medium for a while. And I find that having to do that gear shift where if I'm stuck on a painting, but then I go do comics or if I'm stuck on a piece of writing and then I go do a painting, it's that little jog of having to, to change the vocabulary, change the language of what I'm doing is often enough to, to help me work past whatever I'm blocked on. Um, I also really heavily rely on, on exercise and I find that if you go for a long enough hike, there's very few blocks that don't eventually unravel. So if I'm stuck, I, I usually get the hell out of the studio. Yeah, I so I go trail running a lot, mm-hmm. and I usually find that any problem I have, you can't solve with like a ten mile run. Yep, because <laughs> something's gonna happen at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so something you noted also on your website is that you are a compulsive genre hopper, um, going from illustrator to cartoonist to editor to interviewer to writer and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so I work as a programmer, um, and one of the things that is the most disturbing for programmers is this idea of context switching. It's when you were doing one thing before, (laughs) and then your manager or somebody taps you on the shoulder shoulder and asks you a question, and now you're doing something else. Um, And that's because you've built up this whole... Because programming, a lot of it is just the things that you you hold in your head, and you're trying to translate that. And you have this delicate structure, and any little tap or disturbance totally breaks it all down. you do a lot. I guess this is all to say that you do a lot of different things, and when you, you know, go from an illustration job to a writing job or to an interview job, how do you function? Do you do them all at once, or do you do them one at a time, or a mix of both? All at once. I, I think the thing for me is that I've never seen these mediums as being separate, and in a way, I think I've gotten to a point in my career where the through line is starting to become visible externally and it feels a little bit like wheel of fortune you know where like vanna white is turning over more letters and i feel like for years i was saying like no there's a phrase here it's it's connected i'm going somewhere and now i've kind of been doing all of this genre hopping enough that i think it's starting to show in a way that there were many years in which people really didn't know what to make of me and what i did and now it's become something much more cohesive so in one sense, I think the way in which I'm not constrained by genre, to me, that's just always been how I've seen the world. And now that fusion has sort of become its own medium. And it feels really wonderful to be able to simultaneously work in all these different threads rather than having to, like, yeah, do that disjunctive switching between them. I think you have a very unique perspective just because, you know, there's not very many people that can do all the things that you do. Um, and also, you know, when you have all these different genres... Um, it sounded like, for example, like the cartoonist part is something that you deliberately wanted to work on. But for all the other things that you do, how did they come about? Was it something that you were interested in, or was it something that popped up and then you just got involved in? I would say it happened. it's all happened really organically. I think because I don't have sort of traditional goals, um, and I'm so used to this idea of just dropping into a place and wandering. There's actually a word, kadiwample, um, which means to... Um, to, I think it's to stride purposefully in no particular direction. Um, and that's I love kind of, that. I know, isn't it great? I'm yeah. a professional coddy wampler. Um, yeah, and so I've kind of been led to these different mediums because that's just what the story has demanded. And in my mind, when I'm working on a project, I see... I see whatever story I'm trying to sell as a a living external entity and I'm trying to make friends with it. And so I'll literally just imagine myself like sitting down to tea with this thing where I don't know what it is yet and just kind of getting to know it and asking it, all right, well, what do you want to be? What do you want to come out as? Um, And so in my mind, it's not like I go into something and be like, this wants to be a comic. The story dictates the form. Um. This is something that's tangentially related, but I have a friend who he's pretty much an elite marathon runner, mm-hmm. and uh, we talk about um, running and in running and racing especially. There's always this fine line between how much do you want to push yourself versus how much should you not to save your body mm-hmm. and not have permanent injury. And so what he does is he asks his body, you know, like 
how do we feel? Mm-hmm. Like, do we feel like, is this a good pace? Like, can mm-hmm. we do this? Or like, um, and so that's what he does in the beginning of the race is he checks in with his body and asks it as if it were a different entity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always thought that was a really neat thing. Like that was um, something I wanted, I want to also adopt. But. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, a lot of parallels there. I think I do that with my body too. I see it as it's a collaboration and I want to make sure that I'm listening to my body and yeah, both my body and my creative practice, you know, I want to take care of them so that we can all work together on this. So um, I first was introduced to your creative practice um, a year ago, and that was during Johnny Galore's uh, Academy of uh, Reason and Wonder, and you were giving a talk on strong women, uh, independent women in the 90s. Um, I'm wondering, how did that talk come about? And Yeah, so um, at that point... Can I swear on this? Yes, please. Okay, so the title of that talk um, is Fucking the Patriarchy in the Early 1900s, Strong Women and Why Their Stories Matter. And that kind of naturally started to happen a few years ago where in response to everything that's happened in this country and sort of larger echoes in the world, um, I found myself really going through a period with my creative practice where I didn't know how to keep being an artist given the larger political and social context. And so I found myself at a point where I couldn't, in good conscience, keep using my voice if I didn't in some way turn it towards fighting back. And so that's when my work started to take a shift to being a little bit be, a little bit more progressively and um, deliberately activist. So during the 2016 election, I was actually over in Hong Kong on a research grant digging up um, my family's backstory. And so I was in um, the Hong Kong History Museum as the election results were coming in. And I was in this exhibit about the Japanese occupation. And it was designed to be like a a bomb shelter and complete with like fake power outages and the walls shaking. And the way I was getting updates on the election was by looking at other concerned foreigners who were staring at their phones. And so it was just this really surreal environment to to have this news start to come in. And I think as as the political landscape started to unfold in the way that it did, my sort of sense of anger and helplessness needed an outlet. And so I turned that towards what I started doing creatively. Um, a good example of that is right after the election, I did a project where I partnered with the Asian Counseling Referral Service and went to their um, Club Bamboo Senior Social Club, and it was great. I got to go to ballroom dance classes and play mahjong, and um, basically I was partnered with translators and conducted interviews with a bunch of first-generation immigrant elders for a project called This Is My Home to basically document counter-narratives about immigrants coming to America and stealing jobs and the whole rigmarole. Um, And so since then, I've really deliberately tried to shift what I'm doing towards issues of race, gender, and class, and um, particularly research-based. So, yeah, I think I'm a lot happier with what I'm doing creatively now. So in an odd way, I'm grateful for what this dumpster fire um, (laughs) of the last two years did to my creative practice. I think, um, yeah, 2016 was definitely a wake-up call for a lot of people, myself included, and... I think, you know, whatever you can say of the current situation, I think it's done a great job at getting a lot of people galvanized mm-hmm. and active when before we were more passive, just mm-hmm. watchers of the situation. Yeah, um, and that, that's something actually I've thought about in the context of strong women in Seattle, where, um, you know, you have Ijiomo Luau, who was doing makeup tutorials before... You know, she hit a breaking point and then became this like incredibly strong activist writer. You look at Lindy West, Nikita Oliver, Amelia Bono. You know, these are all people like women in Seattle who were sort of doing their thing, a little bit of activist fringes, and then there was a breaking point, and all of them were like, "Fuck this!" Like we're yelling as loud as we possibly can in those spheres in which we have influence. And I do feel like something similar happened um, with me and my engagement with my own practice. It was a breaking point of anger. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people are feeling that, and so it's coming out in a lot of different ways. When, when you talk about feminism, um, I think a lot of people take that to mean different things. What does feminism mean to you, and what do you want to accomplish? Mm-hmm. <coughs> Sorry, I'm still getting over a cold. Um, 
Feminism for me, it took me a long time to be comfortable using that word because it is so charged and it does mean so many things to so many different people. And I think it it can be a really alienating term depending on what sorts of connotations people are bringing into it. Um, For me, I see my feminist activism as being an attempt to cause people to examine underlying power structures and by looking at the historical record of the inequities that women have faced and the expansions of the definitions of gender that we have now. Like my way of being a feminist is to basically step back from this current moment that we're in because I feel like people's people's emotions are running too high to have any sort of rational discourse about what's going on right now. And so my way of trying to engage with that conversation is to trace it back and say, let's go back 150 years, let's go back 200 years, let's look at this record where the facts are a little bit more removed so there isn't this same sense of like personal affront and anger. And my hope is that by sort of showing a series of, of concrete facts, um, I can cause people to maybe look at this current moment from a slightly different perspective. When, um, when having done the research that you have, and now, in the context of the current moment, um, what maybe not conclusions, but you know, if you trace an arc of feminism or just gender equality and different struggles and within that, how would you categorize like the trends or the movements, and how were they like in the past compared to what it what it is today? Like, what do you want people to maybe take away from? That. Oh gosh, that's a, that's a nice small question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> no worries. No, I have to think about that for a minute. I mean, it's interesting right now. There is such a a crop of new books about female rage that are coming out, and that to me is the element of what's going on in the contemporary movement around feminism that. I'm the most interested in is the idea that for the first time there's this forced acknowledgement of collective female anger and I think that was in large part the result of the Me Too movement and I think right now that is a conversation that we are having in a, a slightly different way which is that women are unbelievably angry and they're finally talking about it and as much as it's still dismissed to some extent I think there's a lot more Um, receptivity to the idea that this anger is grounded in some really concrete and legitimate facts. And I also think it's really important that in any conversation talking about female anger to acknowledge the fact that people of color have been yelling the exact same message for much, much longer and haven't been listened to. And I think what makes me excited about what's going on now is the idea that we're looking at feminism from this perspective that it's really about power. And so intersectionality is starting to become more integrated into all the conversations we're having about it. Because I think previously feminism was sort of coached as being just a women's issue. And so it was something that was easily kind of segregated or seen off to the side. But now with everything having got to the point that it has, it's really impossible to to not see that race, gender, and class are all part of the same negotiation of power dynamics. And so I'm excited that we're having this conversation with those things being entwined um, and the fact that female anger is being seen from this intersectional lens. So I have no idea what this is going to look like five years out, but it, it does seem that there's a lot of momentum right now. Do you find, um, as you're traveling to different parts of the world, um, does feminism mean different things in different countries and different places? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's something that is important to keep in mind is that all these things that I just mentioned, you know, race, class, and gender, we're looking at it through this very specific American lens. And these aren't conversations that carry over with the same context, the same culture, the same connotations. Um, and I, I think that's something that Americans and America as a whole would do well to try and hold in the back of their minds in the conversations that we're having now. Yeah, I think um, it's really easy, especially if you know this is, has been your whole experience to think that everything that happens here is the only thing that matters, and like this is a world. Um, and I think it takes well, like traveling and going mm-hmm. around that you realize well, the world is bigger than that, and those people here have a different world and those people over there have a different world and there's all these different sorts of uh, cultures and perspectives 
Yeah, and I think that's really true within America. You you don't have to leave the country to understand that we actually are living in at least five countries. And I think that, that first experience I had that got me into bicycle travel, I biked alone from Southern California to Maine, and I was on the road for four months, and I only paid for a place to stay once, and that was by choice. So I pretty much just threw myself out as a guinea pig and just stayed with people I met along the way, you know, would go eat snacks outside of a grocery store um, and meet people that way, or go to fire stations, libraries. Um, and so what that really gave me was an understanding of how enormous this country is. And, you know, meeting people who had lived on the same land for five generations and talking to coal miners who had, who were really like facing this slow decline of rural areas. Um, Also seeing the literal segregation of cities. I think one of the great equalizers about being on a bike in an area you're not familiar with is you don't know neighborhoods, you don't know reasonable routes. And so the way that I would travel is I would pick a cardinal direction and more or less just stick to it. And so what that meant is I crossed a lot of cities in basically in ways that most people wouldn't have. And you could really see race, class, and gender playing out in redlining and like it's crazy if you just go to a city and you walk in a straight line and you watch how things change. So this ended up being a bit of a tangent, but I think that experience really made me an American. It made me understand the fact that it's a complete fallacy that we all live within one country. And I think it gave me a much more nuanced, compassionate um, view on different perspectives. Like I think another thing with that question of what would your listeners be surprised to learn about me when push comes to shove my views are probably a lot more moderate than people would expect based on the fact that I am a loudly outspoken feminist but I think some of the experiences that I've had while being alone on a bike like okay I'll give you an example when I was biking across Alabama um, I asked at a fire station if there was a place that I could stay and these very nice firemen invited me in said that I could stay in their bunkhouse and cooked me dinner and one of them was telling me that the only phrase he knew how to say in Mexican was if you don't speak English don't speak and then he asked me well he told me he said oh you got some oriental in you don't you and then proceeded to tell me that my dad was smart for finding a submissive Asian woman and that he wanted one of those. And I think that within sort of liberal context, you know, the idea is that I should condemn this person for his views. But the reality is these are people who took me in, gave me a place to stay, cooked me a meal. And I think traveling alone on a bicycle really made me see that it's hard to hate up close, and the problem within our society is that we don't have these opportunities to interact as human beings without sort of the balkanized baggage that we bring into it. So it's complex, and I find that maybe because of the situations I've put myself in, I'm, <clears throat> I'm more willing to, to lend credence to the enormous divides in people's backgrounds and where they came from. Um, in a way that like might not have happened if I hadn't had so much face-to-face interaction with really differing worldviews. When you talked about connecting with that um, fire person, um, I really connected with that because, well, before we started recording, we talked about couch surfing. And so I actually spent two weeks in Alaska, and I was couch surfing um, across various cities there. And I remember I stayed with somebody who, um, he, you know, he was so kind he picked me up from the airport he invited me to his family we cooked meals together and and, you know really made me feel like part of the family um and he had like another couch surfer that was like staying in the backyard and decided to build a hut and now (laughs) it's going to school and kind of set up a permanent encampment um but at the same time um you know he was he was a firm believer that um, like Obama was the worst possible thing for this country, that it was, you know, socialist, that the military should not listen to a single thing he says, and that um, a lot of views are just radically different from my own. But being in that place, being in his household, like meeting his wife, his kids, it's, you can't, it's so much harder to hate up those because you realize that these are just people. Mm-hmm. And these are people that, you know, want the same things that you do and can show a lot of kindness and and I agree. I think like a big part of the problem of the polarization is that you know we're not actually talking, we're tweeting, we're memeing, we're gaslighting, we're doing all these things, but um, not actually having that conversation, not 
knowing that other side as a person because on the other side there's always a person Mm -hmm. yeah and I love that you bring up the example of Alaska because I think one thing that people who grew up in cities don't really understand is that in some ways rural communities are much much more accepting and flexible than cities are because if you're in a small community you don't have the option of dismissing somebody's humanity out of hand just because you disagree with them and that's one of my favorite things about rural Alaska and rural places in general is this idea that remains intact that you still have to find a way to all be human within the same geographic space and in cities there's such an overabundance of people that it's very easy to just totally dismiss someone if they have a different perspective and you never really get to the point where you have to forge a middle ground and it makes me sad to think that our society for people who grow up within cities doesn't really leave moments where you have to find that complexity yeah it's um it's something that's always been ironic to me is that the more people there are in your area the less likely you will connect with any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, like I went to a small um, engineering college, and you know we had a couple hundred people in our incoming class, and we were subdivided into houses. It's kind of like Harry Potter, except times twelve. <laughs> and so our incoming class in your house was like seventy people, and you knew everybody, and it was really nice, and it did feel like a big family. Sometimes dysfunctional, but still a family. And then I had friends who went to big public schools, so the incoming class was like tens of thousands of people, and they didn't know anyone there. And part of, well, now I'm getting on a tangent, but something... Yay, tangents. (laughs) Exactly. This is always tangents. And something I feel also with cities is this idea that people don't need other people. Like, part of being in rural areas is you realize, well, you know the butcher because he said one butcher, and the mailman because he's the one guy that's going to give you the mail. Um, In the city, with technology, with the affordances of you can have Amazon deliver your groceries and everything else, you can get by your day just fine, actually, without interacting with a single person. And I think, I don't know, something that I think about, because you can say that I'm working on the side that's making this, that's part of this problem, if you will, is as we make people more independent, because technology can provide for more and more of the things that we used to depend on people on, then as people don't need to depend on other people, and what does it, where does it leave us? Because mm-hmm. um, um, part of the, I think, friendliness and outgoingness is because of this dependence. But at the same time, you don't want to say that, oh, well, the solution then is just to take away all these nice things and go back. And so kind of how do you balance that um, this growing um, ability to do these things without relying on other people? but still being able to have that relationship and the closeness with other people without that dependence. Yeah. I mean, I think it requires an internal shift in values. And I think to some extent we're seeing that where people are, are seeing the effects, the isolating effects of not being dependent. And yeah, it, it does feel like we've come to see interdependence as something pejorative, something to be avoided. And there's actually a great Kurt Vonnegut essay Um, Oh, gosh, I can't remember the title of it, but basically it's his tirade about why he loves going to the post office because he has to mail something and his wife says, you know, you you could just buy a box of 500 envelopes and stamps and you wouldn't need to do this. And he basically walks you through the process of like going down the street, having all these interactions, like falling half in love with, you know, the woman behind the post office and how the utility is not the point and I I think that's what we need to have and what maybe we're starting to see is the shift in understanding where convenience is not in and of itself something satisfying and that's something I've very 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 much worked into my life Um, one of my favorite things while I still lived in Seattle is if I ever needed a specific book I would just bike to every used bookstore in Seattle until I found it and you know whether or not I found the book like that was completely ancillary um, and I, I wish that people would find ways to reclaim their sense of enjoyment of things that we've come to rebrand as tasks. Yeah, um, I like what you said about, you know, think about like what the point of it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, we used to get all the benefits of human interaction through doing these, you know, quote unquote tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that a lot of these are just literally one click away. Um, you take away a lot of that, those human interactions. And so 
I think for me, it's mostly just being conscious of that, and mm -hmm. then putting time specifically for, well, being with people and talking with people, and instead of just being off in my own thing, mm -hmm. which I can also be guilty of for a lot of the time. Um, and then, on the topic of you know, doing your own thing for a long time, your current work. Um, You've been at it now for four years, and it sounds like there's still a lot more going. Yeah. <laughs> How do you think about these mammoth projects? Do you take it one year at a time? Do you have a timeline for yourself where you say, I'm giving myself this many years, and this is my progress at each point? But how do you break that down? It's a learning process. I Prior to this project, I'd never worked on anything that I'd spent more than four months on. So, And all told, this will probably be you know, seven years start to finish, if not more. So quite a big jump in timeline there. Um, I initially, when I started this project, sort of knew that it was going to require me to do a lot of things I'd never done before in terms of um, getting grant funding for various portions of it, international research trips, um, learning to very, very badly speak Mandarin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I'm terrible at it. But, um, but, you know, like trying to regain a bridge to my family's heritage language was a part of this process. And so I actually, I did lay out a five-year plan when I started it. Um, and starting to go to artist residencies was part of that. Um, but shockingly, I've like actually adhered to it pretty well. Um, I got a little bit off schedule because I had two years, which I call uh, the years of dead friends, and kind of had to step away to work through a lot of grief. Um, but I'm happy to report that I'm at the phase in the process where I've signed with an amazing literary agent. Um, she's best known for having signed Persepolis, And she's mixed race. Her husband teaches Chinese history. And so the first time we talked on the phone, we ended up spending just the first half hour talking about the phenomenon of first-generation immigrants not teaching kids their heritage language. So um, I now have somebody who is imposing external deadlines <laughs> on me, um, which is great because I think, to answer your question, I've sort of had two years of needing to do like all the research and footwork. I've been in the drawing phase for about a year, but got really distracted by this accidental nude side career as an illustrated feminist lecturer. Um, so now with the seven-month residency that I'm going into, it's when I can finally go full bore back into this project. And the idea is that my agent and I will be trying to sell it on proposal this fall, at which point... Um, I hopefully will have a publishing contract and enough of an advance that I can just like fully disappear and work on this full time. That is so exciting. I'm really looking forward to hearing news about the um, something about your work that I get terrified just thinking about <laughs> is that you're writing about family, uh -huh. um, and you know I've always um, I harbor dreams of writing books one day, and they'll all be fictional but you know thinly fictional and you really know that you're actually talking about yourself or like your family members and that the thing that I always come back to is like okay like when my mom like what will my mom think when she reads this and since you are writing specifically about your mother and your grandmother and your family um have you had like what thoughts do you have of like your mother reading these works have you had conversations or how do you approach that subject Yeah, so I'm working very closely with my mom on this, and I'm viewing it as a collaboration in some ways, and so my mom is very involved in the process. Um, I've been terrible about staying in touch with the chaos of the past year, so I know right now she's, she's sort of just waiting for me to be able to commit to going more into that collaborative process. But I think um, I'm really lucky in that she is incredibly supportive of what I'm doing, and she is really... I think touched by the fact that I want to understand her story more. So I'm I'm fortunate to have a mother who we you know we've talked it out and there are things that we don't see eye to eye on, but she completely supports me in telling the story from the lens that I need to tell it from. And the working relationship that we've been able to come to is that if there's something she disagrees with, I make space to listen and hear that, um, and she doesn't try and change it. So yeah, I, I think. I think we're very lucky in that. And actually, on um, I've gone on two research trips now. I spent 
uh, two months in Hong Kong and went over to mainland China for a week to meet my family for the first time um, about two years ago. And my mom came and joined me for part of that. And then I was just back in Shanghai for six weeks this summer. Um, and my mom again came and met me for a week for that. And we went and spent a week with family again. So it's really... Um, it's really reconnected my mom with her remaining family members. And that's something that, if not for this project, neither of us think would have happened. And I hadn't met my family in China prior to this. So I think both of us have felt really moved and grateful for the doors that this has opened up. I think that's really great. And I am kind of jealous right now. So um, yeah, that's terrific. Um, we're getting now close to the end of the show. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to close out with my closing questions. And the first question I usually ask people is, what is something that has inspired you recently? Recently, um, now that I've sort of switched to focusing on stories of just incredible women from the turn of the 20th century, I initially, when I started down that trajectory, thought, oh no, I'm, I'm going to run out of stories so quickly. But the inverse has been uh, true. And you know, going into these these female author travelogues from the 1880s and like reading books about female adventurers and explorers from this era and then going to the bibliographies and reading everything in the bibliographies, it's like it's opened up this entire parallel universe where now that I sort of know where to look and where to do the research, there's just this overwhelming canon of women doing things that should not have been possible given the eras that they were living in. And it makes me excited and inspired and hopeful. That's a good note to be in, especially these days. Mm -hmm. So my next question, which you've already answered, is you know, what is something that people might not know about you? So I'm going to change that a little bit to, you know, you mentioned that you cook, for example, to get away from uh, making art. How did you stumble upon that? Was that something that um, <laughs> you just had and developed, or so how did that come about? This is a perfect example of how my life runs on weird serendipity. Um, when I was in college, I, I went to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, which is how I ended up in the Northwest. Um, I played rugby all through college, and some of my teammates really liked to get together and drink whiskey and bake pie. And so, An excellent combination. Oh, yeah, yeah. I still think that they go impeccably well together. Um, and so someone in that kind of older cohort had the brilliant idea that if we became a student organization, we could get funding for it. So the Ladies Pie Society was born and we would make an absurd amount of pie and bring it to the library once a week and give it away for free. And so people would know to just show up with a fork and eat free pie. And so initially it had been started by these older women and they all graduated and it kind of fell to me to keep running it. And so as I'm somebody who's like kind of a very big den mother and always invite everyone to everything, it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And I started cooking dinner for everyone who would come over to help bake these pies. And I would pick a different region of the world and just learn about like what their foods were like. And that's how I taught myself to cook. And I got to the point where once a week I was cooking for, you know, sometimes upwards of 20 people. Um, and then since this was in Portland, uh, Portland started to think that we were actually a pie catering company. And so I sort of accidentally ended up running this like freelance donation based pie catering company that would show up to bike in movies and things like that. Um, so that's how I got my foot in the door with cooking. And then I went to Antarctica and cooked on a science research station there and pretty much never stopped. That's such a great story. <laughs> <laughs> and so... It's so Tessa, mm -hmm. I would say. <laughs> My life holds at least five people's worth of serendipity. I'm completely convinced that serendipity is a muscle that gets stronger the more you exercise it. And I think the fact that I, I very rarely have a set agenda or a goal that I'm trying to accomplish, and I just like to fling myself out into the universe and see what happens. So, yes, I, a shocking number of doors that make sense in retrospect um, open in my life. And maybe this is a good transition to my next question, which is, um, what is a principle that you live by? So there's, there's a lot of them. You sent me these questions ahead of time, and on that one, I was like, oh, how do I even choose? So I'm just going to say the, the first one that's kind of at the top of the deck right now. Um, there is a poet and writer by the name of Jim Dodge whose work I love. I did a 
a series of paintings based off of one of his books of poetry a couple years ago and um, titled The Mural That I Did for My Senior Thesis after a line from one of his books. So he's someone I've, I've become friends with over the years because I, I reached out to him because I appreciated his work so much. But he has a poem called There It Is. And the full text of it is, They can do whatever you cannot stop them from doing. You can do whatever you can pull off and still live with yourself. And I think about that a lot in terms of, you know, moving into more activist realms in terms of what I'm doing creatively. And that is often what I run through my head when I'm thinking about what am I trying to accomplish? What's the story that I'm trying to tell? And trying to sort of step away from my own emotional stake in some of these topics and really focus on what's my side of this. Yeah, looking forward to the answer of that question in your upcoming work and talks and everything else you do. I just have one last question before I let you go, and this one is open-ended. Is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you would like to speak to now? Well, I guess just because I'm, I'm in crunch mode for it right now, um, the show I have opening at the Santa Cruz Museum of Art is called Guided by Ghosts, the ones we held along the way. That was a compromise. They wanted to call it Guided by Ghosts, and so... Uh, I got a subtitle. That was how we, we compromised on that. But um, basically, when I started talking to the curatorial team about that show, I really didn't want to step away from the set of questions that I was asking in Feeding Ghosts, my graphic novel. And so this idea of immigration stories, history, research, generational inheritance of trauma, um, I wanted to somehow stay within that world. And so when I started talking to the museum, they just offhandedly mentioned that the Monterey Bay region had a really interesting history with its Chinese-American community and that Santa Cruz used to have an extensive Chinatown that was washed away in a flood. And then it turned out that the museum was literally across the street from where that Chinatown used to be. And the museum also earned, owns the Chinese graveyard. And so I went down and met with our archivist and basically did a research deep dive into the stories of the Chinese-American community in Santa Cruz um, starting in... I would say mainly picking up around the gold rush. Um, but yeah, it's been incredibly, incredibly educational. It was not a history that I knew really anything about before starting this process, but it turns out that there are just, there are a lot of really complex layered stories. And so what I've done for this show is I created six paintings based off of either customs or events in the Chinese-American communities in the Monterey Bay region. And then I'm going down for a long install because I'll be painting a visual timeline onto the actual gallery wall behind these paintings so that viewers are able to see the historical events that have formed them. And then we're also going to be showing you know, newspaper clippings, historical artifacts. So it's basically a painting show in which I've been able to show the process and backstory as part of what we're displaying. And um, one of the walls of the gallery, because it's this continuous timeline, is going to be showing work is in progress from Feeding Ghosts, my graphic novel, to kind of show like why I have, what my stake is in this set of questions. So I'm really excited for that. I'm also very much in crazy deadline mode for it. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, when does the show open? It opens March 1st, and it'll be up until, I want to say, June 24th. So a pretty long time. Okay, and we'll definitely have notes to that and everything mm -hmm. else we talked about in the show notes. Um, and in the meantime, Tessa, thank you so much for talking to me. I think we talked about a lot of topics. I feel like there's a lot more we could have said, so mm -hmm. maybe we'll part two someday. But uh, otherwise, you know, thank you for doing this, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been great. Hey, everyone. This is Kevin again with just a few more things before you go. First, if you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, I would highly encourage you to go on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a rating that helps other people find the show. I hope this episode inspired you to look for some more cotty wampling in your life. And otherwise, until next time, hope you have some great conversations. <laughs>